And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have a treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for you, for those who have wealth, to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, Whatever is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, So we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There is one who has left house, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time, in the age to come, eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Faith in Jesus Christ, lift up your heads with confidence in the assurance of your salvation, because Christ's righteousness has been given to us who have faith. And this is what Paul says in Romans 8. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, who is able to condemn. For Christ Jesus has died. More than that, he, is, he was raised to life and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Holy Spirit, with joy we praise you, gracious God. For you have created heaven and earth. You have made us in your image. And you have kept covenant with us, even when we fell into our sin. We give thanks to you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who came and opened the way of salvation, and whose triumph return we eagerly await. Therefore, we join with all the angels and the saints and creation and proclaim the glory of your name. Amen. Moments ago. Before we look at this passage, let's pray and ask that Jesus, who was there then and who's here this morning, according to his promise, he does not miss a meeting of his people. Let's ask him to speak to us about what he said that day. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have prayed this week as individuals for family, for friends, for neighbors, bringing them before you in prayer as priests. But now, our Father, we have gathered and we're shoulder to shoulder with the same heart and same mind with our fellow priests. 
and we would bring those before you that you have laid on our hearts. Our Father, we, we don't say their names. We don't remember them just so that we can say we've prayed for them. You're there and you hear us. And even right now, you are engaged in answering the prayers of your people. Our Father, we pray for Tyler's cousins, Dick and Barb Jones, this morning that are mourning the death of a daughter. We pray that you would be with them and comfort them. Bless Tyler as he ministers to them in this coming week. We pray for Sheila Noble, and we thank you for her improvement. We pray that you would bless Tom Jeffries as he ministers to his mother. For Priscilla Turner, we pray, Father, that she is so ready to go home and be with you. We pray that in your time, we pray that you would relieve her suffering, relieve her from this disease, and welcome her home. We pray that you would continue to bless Jim Bennington and strengthen him, Billy Griggs, strengthen him. During the week, may they know your presence. We pray for Doug Hay and thank you for how you have blessed his life. Our Father, we pray for the children of Christ Presbyterian Church as we begin a new series of studies on Wednesday evening. We pray that you would bless the children here, the faith weavers, and bless Kimberly as she teaches, and all those who help her. As Tyler meets with the forge, we pray that you would bless that junior and senior high group. Father, we pray that from the youth of this church, from the children of this church, you'll raise up a generation in Fayette County that will make a profound difference for Jesus Christ in this generation, in their generation. Father, we pray that you would bless our marriages as husbands and wives. Where there's hurting hearts and where relationships are broken, we pray that you would bring healing. Now, Father, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would speak to all of us, no matter how young, no matter how old, happy or sad, hurting or full of joy. We pray that you would, we would hear your voice in our hearts in these next few minutes. Where there needs to be confession, Father, bring confession. Where there needs to be repentance, bring repentance. Where there needs to be knowledge, bring knowledge. Where there needs to be understanding, bring understanding. Where there needs to be comfort, bring comfort. 
where there needs to be faith, bring faith. John Sartell cannot do that. These folks know it and I know it. And you know that this is, this is not just empty rhetoric. Oh, Father, we plead with you. There's nothing sweeter than your voice. We pray that we would hear your voice in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Question. Is your Jesus too safe? C.S. Lewis once wrote about how dangerous it is when people who want some bit of religion come upon Jesus. He wrote about how dangerous that is. This is what he said. There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back. They think, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing it is he who has found us. So it's sort of a Rubicon, Lewis said. One goes across or not. But if one does, there's no manner of security against what will happen. End quote. That is exactly what happened to this wealthy young man in the scene before us this morning. He was dabbling in his religion, and then he stumbled across Jesus. He found him, or was it that he had been found? He was on unsafe ground. Maybe afterward, he thought it would have been better if I had never encountered this man. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to have eternal life? He asked the right question, but he never imagined the answer that he received. Sell all you have. Your house, your farm, your investment, your summer house, sell it all. Give the proceeds to the poor and then you come and follow me. First, as we look at Luke 18, we must understand that verses 1 through 30, the whole chapter of Luke 18 forms a unit. It's about one subject. In the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector that we studied last week, we saw that the Pharisee would not become dependent, totally dependent, like a little child on God's grace. He would not give up his precious morality. He would not give up his religious standing to become dependent on God's grace alone. Whereas the tax collector came saying, 
Nothing in my hands I bring. I have no morality to give you. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. And he became dependent, totally dependent upon God's grace. Folks, that's the theme again this morning. Jesus it was relentless on this theme. To illustrate, Luke puts here, right after that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He tells the story, the encounter of a rich, young Donald Trump meeting Jesus. The Pharisee would not give up his self-righteousness and become dependent on God's grace. This man, young and wealthy, would not give up his wealth. That was his security. He would not give up his wealth and become dependent on God. Both the parables, or not the parable and the real life story, are about one theme. Now that we've seen the end of the story, let's look at the details. First, as we begin in the 18th verse, I want you to see a sought confirmation. A sought confirmation. And the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke tells us that he was a ruler, probably a leader in civil affairs. Matthew tells us that he was quite young. They all tell us that he was wealthy. Luke said he had great wealth. Mark tells us that when he came and asked the question that he kneeled before Jesus. But his kneeling had more to do with respect for a great rabbi than any kind of desperation. Other places in scripture, we see men fall before Jesus in desperation. That's not what this was. This was not a desperate man on his knees saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man was a man who already believed in God. He had made serious efforts to obey the law. Look at verses 20 and 21. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I've kept from my youth. This young man had been catechized. He had been raised in the synagogue. He was obedient to God. This was not a desperate man who knew that he was a spiritual leper with no hope. That's not who this man was. And on top of that, the rabbis taught that wealth was one sign of God's blessing. This man was obviously moral, religious, and God had rewarded him. Surely, he was coming and saying, Jesus, surely I must be in good stead with God. Jesus, tell us what I have to do to inherit eternal life. Just confirm what I already know. It's a sought confirmation. I'm a good man. I'm in the kingdom. Don't I have eternal life? He was very much like the Pharisee in the temple, whose sole reason for going to the temple was to remind God how good he was. Remember? He came to tell him, God, look how good I am. This man was saying, don't I have eternal life? I once asked a coach, a very good high school football coach. 
how his undefeated football team could have lost the state championship game that they were supposed to win. I'll never forget that coach's answer. John, our team went to the state playoff saying to the other team, you know we're the best. We know we are. And we want you to confirm it. The coach said the other team had no intention of affirming our team's assumptions. That's very much like most folks who walk into churches all across our land today. I thought about this all week. So many people come to church. We come to a safe God, wanting him to confirm our good standing, our goodness, our well standing before him. What must I do to have eternal life? We want him to say, you already have it. You've been religious all your life. Look at you. God has blessed you with wealth. You see a sought confirmation. Second, you see an unavoidable confrontation. This conversation is just marvelous. An unavoidable confrontation. And Jesus said to him, now remember, what was the question? What must I do inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That sounds like a strange comment to make. Didn't Jesus hear the question? Why did he say, why did you call me good? No one is good except God. The exacting rabbis were very careful about this word good. There's no record in the Talmud of any rabbi being called good. That term was reserved for God alone. Jesus was confronting this man just like he confronted everyone in his ministry. Who do you think I am? Man, young man, am I only a rabbi? Then why do you call me good if I'm only a rabbi? He was saying, who do you think I am? He, he knew what was being rumored out there. Jesus had been claiming this every day of his ministry. Every miracle had proclaimed his deity. On top of that, he said things like, your sins be forgiven you. And when the Pharisees said, no man can forgive sins but God, he said, what? So that you may know, so that you may know that I have the power to forgive sins. Paralyzed man, take up your bed and walk home. No one could be around Jesus long until he was forced to answer the question. Who do you think I am? That's what was happening here. Man, who do you think I am? You called me a good rabbi. Is that all that I am? And why do you use the word good then? Folks, that question by Jesus is unavailable. If you're a stranger to the Gospels, maybe you have been taught or you have thought that well, Jesus was just a good man, just a good prophet. You need to know this morning that on every page of the Gospels, Jesus claimed deity. Far more. He, he, he was not claiming to be just a good man. And I prove it to you. Go home and read the Gospels today. Pick one of the Gospels today, another one tomorrow, another one tomorrow, one the next day. 
Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you'll see it. Jesus will confront you and say, who do you say that I am? I'm claiming deity. You'll be faced with that unavoidable question, am I God or not? Assault confirmation, an unavoidable confrontation. Thirdly, I want you to see an impossible obligation. Look at verse 20. So Jesus begins to answer the question. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now, what was the question? Again, what must I do to have eternal life? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Jesus was quoting the second table of the Ten Commandments that had to do with man's relationship to man. Now, that answer is stranger than the comment that Jesus had been made. Why do you call me good? It's stranger than that. Why? We know you're saved by grace, not by obeying the commandments. We know that we're we're not saved by keeping the law. Ah, But see, this man thought he could be saved by keeping the law. Jesus said, you want eternal life? Let's pull out the law. Let's pull out the commandments. At this point, that young man was saying, this is good. He's going to confirm my good standing. I like the law. I obey God's law. But Jesus was really giving him an impossible obligation. Look on your scripture sheet at Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one, look at this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. You cannot become righteous observing the law. It's through the law that we become conscious of sin. The only thing the law does is convince us that we've broken the law, that we can't keep it. When I was a student pastor in Joe Ridge, Virginia, in the summer of 1967, Joe Ridge was a, a coal mining community. It was a coal mining camp. There was a man who lived next door to us, a Scotsman, crusty old Scotsman, still had a heavy accent. He told me soon after we moved, he was very bold. He made a point to tell me, I don't go to your church. I don't go to any church. My religion is the Sermon on the Mount. He told me this the first month I was there. He told me this at least two or three times a week. Finally, one evening, I was sitting in his home after dinner. We were visiting, and he said one more time, Pastor, preacher, my religion is the Sermon on the Mount. I'd had enough. I said, I'm not going to use my Bible. I'm going to use your Bible. Hand me your Bible. He gave me his Bible. And I turned to Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. I turned the Sermon on the Mount. And I said, I've let you get away with this for the last time. And I read from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, if you hate a man, or a woman, you hate a person in your heart. You have murdered that person. I said, that makes me a murderer. Obviously, you're better than I am because this is your religion 
and you're, you're not a murderer. I read part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, if a man looks after a woman and lusts after her in his heart, he's com- committed adultery. Same as adultery. And I said, I'm an adulterer. Obviously, you're not. You don't think you are. And I just kept reading through the Sermon on the Mount, all the impossible obligations that this place upon us. And finally, the old Scotsman said, Preacher, I must go to bed. It's past my bedtime. And he escaped. But he never said to me again in the entire summer, my religion is a sermon on the mount. It's an impossible obligation. Assault, confirmation, an unavoidable confrontation, an impossible obligation. Fourthly, we see an arrogant calculation. Look at verse 21. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Do you see how arrogant this young man was? He was like the Scotsman. Oh, I've kept all those. Yeah, sure. And you've been to the other side of the moon, lived on Mars for five years and traveled to the nearest galaxy. We've seen Jesus' sense of humor over and over again in the Gospels. I've wondered for years when I read this passage, why why didn't Jesus just laugh at this point? Just really laugh. Why didn't he say, young man, that's the most ridiculous statement I've ever heard in my life. Your statement is ludicrous. Jesus could have named the 1,000th time that he had broken the commandments that he thought he was keeping. This man looked at Jesus, an omniscient God, and said, I have kept the commandments since I was a boy. In 1992, in Rapid City, South Dakota, Dennis Lee Curtis was arrested for armed robbery. But he was a thief with scruples. In his wallet, the police found the code of rules that Curtis swore to follow. He had this code of rules. Listen to them. One, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. Two, I will take cash and food stamps. No checks. I will rob only at night. Four, I will not wear a mask. Five, I will not rob many marts in a 7-Eleven stores. Six, if I get chased by cops on foot, I will get away. If chased by a vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians in danger. This is the best one. I will rob only seven months out of the year. Eight. I will enjoy robbing from the rich to give to the poor. What was that thief saying? I'm really a good guy. That thief was a thief with scruples. We're like that. We're sinners with scruples. I will only tell white lies. I've heard this so often. I, I, I don't gossip. I just tell the truth. I will live for money, but I'll use it to help others. I will divorce my wife, but I will take care of her and confess any sin on my part. 
I'll obey my parents when they're reasonable. I will only cheat when I have an impossible teacher or an impossible class. We're sinners with scruples. People, that means that we are liars, gossipers, materialistic adulterers, covenant breakers, disobedient children, cheaters. We have scruples, but we're all of those. This is a true statement. We have interpreted a sense of morality to be the same as obedience. We have interpreted a sense of morality to be the same as obedience. That kind of reasoning would make most rapists, rapists and murderers obedient. You see assault confirmation, an unavoidable confrontation, an impossible obligation, an insane calculation, and finally a demand for a costly capitulation. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. We've, we've read this so many times, we've become immune to the force of what Jesus was saying. Hearing this so many times <clears throat> has been like receiving a vaccination against the, the cost of what Jesus was saying. You see, this was a real man. This was not a parable. This man had real wealth. And Jesus really said to him, there's only one point you are missing when it comes to the law. It's the first commandment. God said, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Man, he was saying money is the Lord and God of your life. It is your first love. So. I'm going to place myself before your God. I'm going to probably go stand beside your God and say, Chiefs, your money or me. You want to know the way of salvation? That's it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Is that what money says? He said, sell all you have, your investments. Sell them. Your house, your summer home, your extravagant clothes, your horses, your stocks, your securities, everything. Not only sell it, but give the proceeds to the poor. And then you come and depend on me and follow me. Question. Who of us, put yourself where that young man was. Who of us would have done that? What if Jesus said that to you this morning and you know that he said it to you? What would you do? Well, you say, John, money, money, money's not my God. No, oh, really, all of us in this sanctuary can say that. Money's not my God. Okay, let's suppose that money is not our God. Was not Jesus saying, I will come and stand beside whatever God 
or gods you have in your life, and I will say choose. Who do you love? Does he not stand besides the gods that we love the most? Who do you love? This is the Jesus who said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It was Jesus that said that. People, this is not a safe Jesus who just fits in wherever we desire in our lives. This is a Jesus who demands we give up that which we love the most, that we capitulate everything if he wants it. Unconditional surrender. And he keeps coming back and saying that about any God that challenges our affection. Who do you love? This is not a one-time decision. I've been on earth 74 years, and he keeps coming back. In saying the same thing to me, he said, when I was nine years old and 15 years old and 25 years old. No one will ever demand more of you than Jesus will demand. No one will ever make more costly demands than Jesus. Jesus was not kidding. Sell all you have. God is not kidding. This is a God who said to Abraham, what did he say to Abraham? Abraham, you love Isaac so much, I want you to sacrifice him to me. This is a God who said to Gideon, I want you to take 300 Hebrew soldiers and go do battle with 135,000 Midianite crack troops. This is a God who said to a 13-year-old boy, I want you to go fight the greatest warrior of the Philistine army. He's only five times larger than you are. This is a God who said to Job, I want, I will take your wealth from you. I will take your children from you. I'll take your health from you. Will you still love me? This is a God who said to Daniel, Go pray and keep the faith, even though, even though it's a penalty of death if you pray. You go and pray, Daniel. And if the world has promised to throw you into a den of hungry lions, you go pray anyway. People, that God is not safe. You just don't fit him into any place in your life. However, this is the same God who said, I'll sacrifice my son to save you. Even though you ignore me, even though you spit on him, even though you laugh at him, I'll crush him. I'll send him to hell to save you. You don't fit that God into anywhere you want to in your life. Our hymn is a great, great hymn that we love in Christ alone.
If you've realized this morning that you have dabbled in religion and that you really don't know this Jesus, you've never capitulated and said, whatever I have, Father, whatever I have, Jesus, is yours. You've never come empty handed. You brought your baptism, you brought your religion, you brought whatever. If that's you this morning, make this your profession of faith. Make this the day that you stand before Jesus and say, whatever I am, it's yours. Whatever I am, it's yours.